have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We've talked about the different sections that Matthew kind of breaks up his book into. And we're entering a little bit of a new section as we start chapter 11 this morning. In chapter 10, Jesus gave his disciples instructions because they're going out on their first missionary journey. And he says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go out and you're going to do all these amazing things, but some people aren't going to like it. Some people are going to hate you for it. Some people are going to be super excited about it. The reactions that you get from different people are going to be based on the way people treat me, Jesus says. He says, if the people treated me well, they'll treat you well. If the people treat me badly, they'll treat you badly. And so what Matthew chooses to do here in the point of his story is he says, okay, this is what Jesus just said. Now let me give some examples of what that looked like. And so over the next several chapters, Matthew is going to tell some stories about how people responded to Jesus. Some people were super excited about Jesus. Some people were really mad at Jesus. And some people, like John the Baptist, we're going to see today, had some doubts about Jesus. We're going to spend all of this morning talking about doubt. And if you've been following us on social media or you were here last week, we talked about um, how we're starting something or testing something called Q&A Sunday. Um, if it works, we'll do it more regularly. But Karis, you can put the slide up on the screen. What we're going to do is after the message, um, John's going to come up and uh, we're going to do a little back and forth. And the way you can be a part of that is if you have a question at any point this morning, you can text it to that number there, and uh, John will get it on his computer, and we'll try to interact with it if, if we can. Uh, and the reason I wanted to start doing this, if, if you recall, when we were meeting in my home early on when we launched the church, there was a lot of really good dialogue around the word. And, and, and we kind of lost that when we got here because this is a big, scary building, and nobody likes to talk. Um, but So in order to create kind of a safe environment for people to ask questions... We thought we'd try something new. And so if you have any questions and you, and you don't want to raise your hand and you don't want people to know it's you, this is totally anonymous, text it in and we'll, we'll see what we can do with it at the end. But before we get started, I want to tell a story. Um, I got permission from my daughter to tell this story. Uh, but Karis, when she was a little bit younger, uh, she, it was bedtime at our house and I was sitting on the couch in the living room and Joanna went into Karis's bedroom to tuck her in. And after a while, I heard some crying from, the, from her bedroom. And I thought, you know, somebody is always crying in my house, so it's really not a very big deal. It's kind of par for the course. But after a while, Joanna came in to the living room and said, hey, can you, can you come talk to Karis? And I said, sure. And so I, I went in and, and I walked into her bedroom and she looked up and she saw me and she started crying more, which again is totally normal. <laughs> um, and, and I sat down on her bed and I said, what's going on? And she was just sobbing and she couldn't even speak. And Joanna said, Kara said it has something to do with sin. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can't even fathom what this is about. And, I, and we told her, you know, we, we, and we always tell our kids, like, you can tell us anything. We're going to love you no matter what you say, no matter what you do. We're your parents and we love you and we, you can be honest with us and we're not going to be judgmental and... And so we, and I, and I rehearsed this to her again. And, and finally, she, she's still sobbing and she's choking out the words. And she says, Daddy, I, I don't mean to, 
but sometimes I have a thought, what if God isn't real? And she just bursts into tears. And at that moment, like, I was super relieved. (laughs) Because I said, oh, sweetie, that's okay. Everybody has thoughts like that sometimes. I think thoughts like that, and I'm a pastor. And she goes, really? (laughs) And I said, yeah. And you know what? That's actually good news because that means you're taking your faith seriously. You're asking questions about what you believe. Oswald Chambers has this quote. He says, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. And my daughter at that point, I knew, was taking hold of her faith in a real way. She wasn't just believing what mom and dad told her to believe. She was thinking about it on her own. And I was proud of her for that. See, people in the church, I think we, we sometimes think that we can't have doubts, that doubts are somehow off limits. But the thing about doubt is doubt implies belief. If you are having doubts about something, you have some belief in it to start with. Like, I don't, re- I don't wring my hands together every spring and go like, is there a rabbit that lays chocolate eggs? I don't know. Like, I'm pretty sure that there's not. I don't have doubts about the Easter bunny. I just don't care. But to have doubts about something means that there's, there's something that you want to believe to be true, that you have some faith in. And so these six verses, we're going to take a look at John the Baptist's doubts, and we're going, to, we're going to go through this passage again, and we're going to do it twice. We're going to go through, and we're going to ask the question, why do we doubt? And we're going to look at four reasons why we might doubt, and then we're going to go through the passage again and figure out how to deal with some of our doubts and look at four ways we can deal with our doubts. So Take a look at verse one. When Jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. So Jesus has sent his disciples out on this missionary journey, this short-term mission for them to go out and preach and teach. And while they're doing that, he's off preaching and teaching in the places that they're from. Verse two. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples. So the first reason why we doubt that I think we can pull from this passage is that our circumstances are lame. This is is pretty common, and this is where John is. John is in prison. And here's the thing about John. John was chosen from birth to be the forerunner of the Messiah. His job was to go out in front of Jesus and tell everybody, Jesus is coming. The Christ is coming. The King is coming. And he was kind of a weird guy. He lived in the desert and he wore fur and he ate bugs. But he was super attractive to the people. They thought he was kind of nuts and they wanted to go out and see him and hear what he had to say. And he had this message of repentance. But then he started sticking his nose where people thought it didn't belong he started calling out his leaders for their sexual immorality. And he got thrown in prison for it. And he's sitting in prison, 
And Roman prison is not fun. It's not like American prison where they feed you and give you a bed. They don't do any of those things in Roman prison. It's pretty awful. And he's kind of rotting away in prison. And he has questions. Like, this doesn't seem to be going the way I thought it was going to go. Have you ever been there where you feel absolutely sure that God wants you to do something, but it doesn't turn out the way you thought? And then you think like, well, was I, was I supposed to do that? Did I hear God wrong? Is God faithful? Can I trust God? And it's, it's tempting it's tempting to say, you know what, if you, if you step out and do something and it doesn't go according to plan, then God's just got something better for you right around the corner, right? We hear that a lot. That's like, you know, when, where God closes a door, he opens a window. But that's not John's story. John does exactly what God asks him to do. He's faithful. He gets thrown in prison. And next time we see John, he's gonna be dead, because his head's going to get cut off due to some drunken antics at a party. Like, that's not fun. <laughs> like, that's, that's awful. And this is a reason why we doubt, because we're in the midst of circumstances that don't seem that great. Look at verse 3. He sent a message to his disciples and asked him, asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? See, at the beginning, John was sure Jesus is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But now, now he's not so sure. And I think sometimes when we doubt, it's because we just don't have clarity. We don't understand things. Sometimes doubts come up in our mind when we have a lack of, of information. It doesn't take long to get on the internet and find blog posts and YouTube videos from atheists who have all kinds of reasons why God doesn't exist or the Bible's not true or Jesus isn't real. And at first blush, it kind of, it kind of makes sense. Like you can, you can read those arguments and watch those videos and they're compelling. Or if you've ever read the books of Christopher Hitchens or um, Richard Dawkins or some of the other big name atheists, like, like it kind of makes sense but that's because you don't have all the information. Sometimes you need to get more understanding to deal with your doubt. Mark Sayers writes, doubt is the blank parts of the canvas which is being filled with the color of belief. We all start with this blank canvas and it's filled in with the color of belief. And, and if, if I'm honest, my canvas has grown over the years to where there's more blank parts now than there were early on in my life. But as I learn more about God, as I ask questions, as I grow, those slowly get filled in. But when they're not filled in, when there's big holes, sometimes that can cause us to doubt. Verse four, Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Third reason why we sometimes doubt is we misunderstand the promises of God. 
See, John's understanding of the Messiah and, and the Jewish world's understanding of the Messiah in the first century was that the Messiah, the king, is going to come. He's going to kick out the Romans. He's going to free the Jewish people. There's going to be a great military victory. The Messiah is going to be seated on the throne. And you know what? John is the forerunner of the Messiah, so he's probably going to have a pretty sweet job in that government's administration. But Jesus answers, and he, he doesn't exactly quote, but he alludes to two places in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, where the Messiah is promised to bring about these things, the sight to the blind, walk, the lame walking, cleanse of lepers, the deaf hearing, the dead raised. And these are all things that the Messiah is going to do. And Jesus says, look, this is what I'm doing. And those promises were all in there, but John wasn't looking at those promises. He was looking at some other promises that he was misunderstanding. Because see, Jesus is going to come and rule and reign as king. But that wasn't the first time. That's going to be the second time when he returns. We have been given promises in Scripture. I want to read one to you. It's in John chapter 14. John 14, Jesus says, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says that I'm going to come back and get you. For some of us, that will be individually when our time here is up. For others of us, that will be collectively when Jesus returns for all of his people. Like, that's a promise we can hold on to. But there's a lot of other promises we tell ourselves about God that, that may or may not be true. Like, have you ever heard, like, God has given you a dream. He's placed a desire in your heart, and he's going to prosper it. You're a child of the king who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and he doesn't want his kids to be poor. Just like David, God will give you victory over the giants in your life. You ever seen this on Facebook? <laughs> it's all over. And those ideas, they're kind of true. They start out with a little hint of true, but then they kind of go off the rails. See, John is looking at these Bible verses about the Messiah and saying, like, this is what I'm expecting of you. And Jesus is saying, no, this is what you should be expecting instead. I want to read you a couple other passages. In the book of Psalms. Psalm 73. Verse 25. It says, the psalmist writes, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forevermore. The psalmist doesn't look to God's blessings. He looks to God himself. 
Psalm 16, verse 5. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. And then we can read Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, or verse 7. He says, But everything that was gained to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dumb so that I may gain Christ. See, we don't, we don't put those verses on Facebook, on our coffee mugs, because those aren't promises that we really want to hold on to. We don't want to... We don't want to get, we don't get excited about that. But God's word is clear that God's people will go through things that are unpleasant, that are not fun. And sometimes we have the tendency to ignore that in favor of some other things that sound easier, sound better. And when things don't go according to what we believe God promises they should go. We can doubt. Look at verse six. Jesus says, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Fourth reason we might doubt is is because we trust our culture more than we trust our savior. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And the, the reality is, is nobody's really offended by Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus. People get offended by the things that Jesus stands for. When you start actually living in a way that is in line with who Jesus is. When we say things like, unborn humans are people made in the image of God and they deserve to be protected and cared for. People don't like that. A lot of that's going on right now in our political system. When we, when we stand up for the rights of the poor and the refugee, we say these are also people made in God's image and they deserve to be cared for and protected. There are people that don't like that. When we say that human sexuality was designed to be expressed in a lifetime commitment between two differently gendered people, people don't like that. When we say that our nation has a perverted obsession with war and violence, people don't like that. And so how many of us feel the pressure when it comes to whether I stand up for what I know to be true or what I just let my beliefs go by the wayside. Maybe, maybe Jesus didn't really mean what he said. Maybe, maybe the Bible isn't totally true. We begin to have doubts because sometimes it's just easier to go along with the flow of the culture than it is to stand, to not be offended by our Savior. I'm sure there's other reasons why we might doubt, but those are four that I came up with in this passage. So let's go back through and and talk about some ways we can handle our doubt. Look back up at verse two. 
Now, when John heard in prison that the, what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples. One really good way to deal with doubt is to get other people involved. In order for John to send a message through his disciples, he, had to, he was stuck in prison. He had to talk to his disciples and go like, hey guys, I'm super confused. I thought Jesus was gonna rule and reign and kick out the Romans, but I'm in prison. What's going on? How do we, what should we do about this? How should we deal with this? What do you guys think? If you have doubts, talk to people about them. Because see, we all think that whatever doubt I have, whatever thing I'm struggling with, with my faith, I am the only person that feels that way. I'm the only person that's ever thought that. And that's not true. Chances are most of the people in the room have thought the same things at one point or another. My challenge to us is that we want this to be a safe place for people to have doubts. We want this to be a place where it's okay to be struggling. Secondly, in verse three, his disciples asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? The way to deal with doubt is to ask your questions. Don't be afraid of uncomfortable questions. Don't be afraid of uncomfortable answers. See, I think we, we think that maybe 2,000 years of Christian history is just built as a house of cards. And if I ask a question, the whole thing's gonna come tumbling down. But that's not true. The word of God, and when I say the word of God, I mean Jesus and the Bible. They can handle your questions. Charles Spurgeon says, the word of God is like a lion you don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. We need to be a place where questions are encouraged, where there aren't any questions that are off limits, where everyone feels free and safe to ask. And this isn't just something that we can be passive about. We have to pursue this kind of culture. My, if you're not in a community group, um, they're awesome. We have, they meet all throughout the week in homes and there's 10 to 15 people. Um, and we study the word and have a meal and, and just get to know each other and um, serve the community. And in, in our community group that meets in our home, we have this, this, one, this one individual that pretty consistently tries to ask questions and then talks themselves out of it. Hey, what, what, what about, like, no, no, never mind. That, that's a stupid question. No. And we have to go, no, 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 it's not. It's not a stupid question. Ask it, please. We want to know. What are you thinking? What are you struggling with? And to my knowledge, I've never purposely created an atmosphere where questions are a bad thing. I've never purposely given the impression that people, that's a stupid question. You shouldn't ask that. I never, I've never said that. And yet the default posture of this person's heart is like, I don't want to ask a question because it's a stupid question and we're not supposed to ask questions. We're just supposed to read it and understand it and know it and believe it. And I think for a lot of us, that's just kind of the default attitude we have about faith. And we need to work hard to break those walls down between us and make it safe to ask questions. 
The third way we can deal with doubt is we can fall back on what we know to be true. Look at verse four. Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. John is questioning Jesus, but Jesus knows that John will not question the Old Testament. John believes firmly in the Hebrew scriptures that they are true. And so Jesus says, okay, here's where you're doubting. Go back to what you're not doubting. Go back to the scriptures. Let that be your foundation and let that inform your doubts. Look back on what you're sure of when you're unsure of something. Go back to this book that you trust and use it to build your understanding of the next thing. There's this um, trend in, in Christian circles, mostly with young people. It's called theological deconstruction. If, you've, if you're aware of it, there's a lot of podcasts and books. And, and basically, it's, it's people who are just taking everything about their faith and questioning it and tearing it all down to the basics. And that's okay if, that, if that's helpful for you, but what a lot of people do is they just tear everything down and they never build it back up. They never reconstruct it. But if you're gonna, if you're gonna question your faith, you need to commit to building it back up. And sometimes that's a long process because you have to go all the way back to what you're sure of. Um, Rene Descartes said famously, I think, therefore I am. This was his way of saying, if, if I'm doubting something, if I'm doubting everything, at least I know that I am a being that has doubts. I can be sure of that because I know that I'm doubting in my own mind. And then he builds his philosophy of life off of that and that's a, long, that's a long way back. If you're doubting everything about reality and you have to go back to like, I, th I, I think I am a being. Maybe that's you, but maybe not. But what, what can you go back to when you doubt? What can you be sure of? You know what? I, I, I'm confused about these political things. I'm confused about gay marriage and abortion and where I stand on that, but I know the Bible is God's word. Okay, great. Start with that. Study God's word and, and see where it takes you. Or maybe, like, I'm not even sure the Bible is God's word anymore, but, but I believe in Jesus. Awesome. Let's talk about Jesus. Or maybe you go like, I don't even know that God is real but I know that this world has order to it. This world, this can't be an accident. Great, start there and then build up. What Jesus does is he takes John back to a firm foundation and tells him to build from there. The other night we were, we were getting ready to list our house to sell it and we have these windows that, that start fairly reasonably high that I can clean, but then they then they follow the path of our staircase. This is the best day ever. <laughs> they follow the path of our staircase into our basement. And so as they go, it gets harder and harder to reach them. And uh, 
So I got a board out of our garage and I, I ran it across. We have a little lip on the other side of our stairs and I ran it across so that it was um, perpendicular to the staircase. And I told Joanna to, to stand at the end of the board because the only way it was gonna fall is if it slid out from that little lip and I didn't want that to happen. So I told her to stand at the end of it. And then I got up on the board and I cleaned the windows. And I was sure about that board. It was a firm foundation for me. It was firm enough so that I could stand on it. I could get the window cleaner out. I could wipe the glass. I could reach way over here to some parts that were hard to get to. But for my wife and children, they were not sure that it was a firm foundation. And they were freaking out for the five minutes that I was standing on this board cleaning windows. See, because I was standing on a, something that I knew to be firm, I could get some stuff done. I could, I could clean the windows. I was totally confident where I was. But if they were in that position, they would have been paralyzed. They wouldn't have been able to clean the windows because they were afraid the board was going to fall. And so if we're going to go out into the world and deal with our doubts and our beliefs and the things that we struggle with, we have to be standing on a firm foundation. And, and wherever that is for you, you have to find that before you can move forward. The last way I want to talk about dealing with doubt, verse 6. Jesus says, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Tim Mackey says that John is discovering, what John is discovering is that he's actually placing his hope and his trust in a little movie reel that has been playing in his head about what he expected Jesus to do and to be. Can you relate to that? Have you ever thought, like, this is, this is how it's going to go. I'm going to do this. God's going to do this. this. These are the circumstances that are going to be arranged. It's going to be awesome. Like I said, we just listed our house for sale. We've been talking about that. God, we're going to put our house for sale, and then God's going to bless it, and it's going to sell really fast for lots of money. And there's probably going to be eight people that are going to get in a bidding war over it, and it's going to be awesome. And then we're going to find this other thing, and it's, just, it's all going to happen just really easily. And we just play this in our heads. This is, this is how it's going to go. He's not, he's not placing his hope in Jesus. He's placing his hope in the Jesus that he's imagining in his mind. And for us, dealing with doubt means to place our hope in Jesus himself. Sometimes our doubts are intellectual. Sometimes we don't have the right information, but sometimes they're emotional. Sometimes hard things are happening, like John and we have great expectations about how they should turn out, and they don't turn out that way. And sometimes we don't even recognize that we have expectations about a situation until our expectations are not met. <coughs> um, I grew up having pretty good birthdays. My, my parents... Um, threw me parties a lot. I had lots of friends. We had a pool in our backyard. My birthday was usually pretty fun. But as I got older, as I left my parents' house, I, I began to realize that my birthday wasn't as awesome as it used to be. It just kind of became a day. 
And what's funny is, is I, I think every year on my birthday, I think, you know what, it's, it's just, it's fine. It's going to be just a regular day. But after my birthday, when it is a regular day, I get super disappointed. And I don't even, I don't even realize it going into it that like, oh man, I really expected like something awesome to happen today and it did not. My birthday was a couple weeks ago. I woke up um, in Portland. I was, I was with a cohort of guys that I meet with over there monthly. And we're all friends on Facebook. And I thought, you know, Facebook tells you when your friend's birthdays are. And I thought, you know, I'm going to wake up and they're going to be like, happy birthday, Zach. They did not do that. And then, this is how pathetic I am. I got to the airport on the way home that day. And I thought, oh man, the TSA agent is going to look at my driver's license and he's going to be like, hey man, it's your birthday. Awesome. He didn't do that at all. And then I flew home. I got, a, I got an early flight home. I was supposed to get home at like six o'clock that night. And I got an early flight at like two. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be good. And I got home from my early flight and I got to the parking garage at the Spokane airport and I had a flat tire uh, on a car that I've never had a flat tire on in my life. And so I got the spare out and I, I, got, the, I, I got the jack and the, the wrench and I, I got the lug nuts off, but I couldn't get the tire off. It was just stuck. So I had to call roadside assistance and they came out and they banged on the tire with their um, special tools and then they got it off and got my spare on. And I had to drive out to Les Schwab and get it fixed. And so by the time I got home, I mean, it's good I got the earlier flight, but it was about the same time as I would have gotten home or otherwise. And all throughout this day, I'd also been kind of struggling with a stomach ache. And I got home and my wife had sent the kids off to the grandparents and she was in this great party dress and she was ready to take me out to dinner. And I just said, I don't feel good. I need to go lay down. And I thought, man, what a terrible birthday. <laughs> and sometimes we, we have expectations for ourselves and we don't, we don't recognize it until after they're not met. One more, one more little more serious story about this. When, when we were first married, um, a couple years into it, uh, Joanna and I got pregnant. And she was super thrilled. I was supportive. <laughs> We didn't have a lot of money at the time, and I was kind of concerned about the whole situation, but um, we were going to have a baby. And a few months into that pregnancy, she lost the baby. She miscarried. And, and after that, she miscarried a few more times. And the doctors said, you know, you might, you might just not be able to have children. And she went through this place in her life that was really, really dark for her. Because, and, and, and she'll, she'll tell you this, she, she said, you know what? She told God, we did things right. We, we saved ourselves physically for marriage. We were good Christian kids. We didn't, we didn't kiss each other until our wedding day. And, and part of her thought, you know what, God? You owe me for this. She had all these expectations about what parenthood would be like, and they didn't turn out the way she wanted them to. And she really struggled for a while. And God brought her through that, and, and, and it's been an amazing 
thing to watch God work through her life in that journey. And since, I mean, obviously, Karis was born after that and we were allowed to adopt Nora. But how many of us have ever felt that way, where you have expectations that life is going to go a certain way and it just doesn't? It's a realization that you are not placing your hope in Jesus. You're placing your hope in what you hope Jesus to be for you. So my encouragement, where if, you, if you're doubting today, my encouragement is to talk to somebody about it. Ask questions. Figure out what you're sure of. And reorient yourself to Christ. Pray. Talk to God about your doubts. Open the Gospels and read about Jesus. Begin to believe Jesus for who he actually is and not who we try to make him out to be. So I'm going to pray and then um, I'm going to have John come up here and we're going to see if we have any questions that we can talk through for a few minutes. God, thanks for today. Thanks for an opportunity to just open your word. God, I just pray that, that there's there's things rattling around in our hearts, doubts we have about theology or about God's love for us or any other thing that, that you would help us to, address those head on, to not run away from them, to not try to ignore them, but invite you and your people into them, to work through them, to talk about them, to get better information, to understand your promises more fully, to fall in love with Jesus himself and not what we imagine him to be. God, I just pray as we uh, interact with some questions that, that you would um, just continue to minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, come on up here, John. What do we got? All right. Ooh. All right. So for the less serious question, yes, the bird did survive. All right. So we got that one out of the way. Good. I don't even right. know what's going on around here. <laughs> uh, then let's go. All right. First question. What is the difference between doubt and lack of belief? So like there's the story in Mark where the guy says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so there's definitely like this, in, in his mind at least, there's this like level of, of believing. I mean, I think you could like clinically say doubt is more like, here's what I believe, but, but now I'm having second thoughts. Lack of belief is maybe never having that belief to begin with. It was also, um, as I was, I was studying this week, uh, came across a de- definition of skepticism. 
and how um, a true skeptic is someone that's searching for knowledge, but someone who is an unbeliever is unwilling to go on that journey. Uh, somebody who is struggling with doubt is maybe processing or should be processing through, like, what do I believe? Where can I find more information about this? Who can I talk to to help me wrestle with these things? Um, and lack of belief could maybe just be like, I don't care. I'm not into that. Um, I guess it depends on, on how you, who, who's saying it and how, what kind of um, context it is. Yeah, I'm just kind of thinking the doubt is what you're describing, the ongoing thought process and seeking, and the lack of belief is just basically you've kind of gone down that road and you just stop and just say, yeah. nope, I'm kind I mean, of like done. my analogy, I don't believe in the Easter Bunny. I don't really look into that at all. I'm not, yeah. I'm not researching that. I'm not trying to figure that out. I just, I came to a point where, like, I knew that that was not a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't believe it anymore. Kind of reached that point, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Next question. How do we know that the specific 66 books of the Bible are the inspired word of God meant to be read as such? And I apologize. This is like Twitter, so we only have 100 and whatever characters. So there's a second part to this question. If you text that in, uh, feel free to send in that second part. But as of right now, uh, how do we know that the specific 66 books of the Bible are the inspired word of God meant to be read as such? That's a big question. Um, <laughs> there's lots and lots of time we could spend on that question. Um, but they, there's, a, there's a really good book uh, in our library. And if you didn't know about our library, you can take books from our library and read them, bring them back, or not. They have a sticker on them that says they belong to the church, though. So if you steal them, God will haunt you forever. <laughs> um, there's a book called, I think it's called, Can We Trust the Gospels? It's red and gold. And uh, the author of that book makes the point that kind of the Christian faith rises or falls on the story of Jesus. And if you, if you can get to the bottom of who Jesus is, then everything else kind of unfolds from there. Because if, if the story about Jesus is true, Jesus was really confident that the Hebrew scriptures were true. He talked about what we call the Old Testament in a way that said, like, it's, this is God's word. He called it God's word. And so if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, is the son of God, then we can trust what he has to say. So that gives the Old Testament credibility. And then he also said that these guys, these disciples of his, were going to go out and they were going to testify about him. And so they went out and they wrote the New Testament. So that's kind of the place to start when you're looking at, um, is the Bible true in my mind? Because there's, um, if the stories about Jesus are true, and I, I think they are, I think there's really good historical evidence, literary evidence to say that the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John really happened. Um, then Jesus lends a lot of credibility to the rest of the Bible. Um, beyond that, um, there are, there's lots of in-depth stuff you could talk about about how, how we got the Bible, how the manuscripts of the Bible came to be. Um, the Bible that we have in front of us is like 99.7% um, 
accurate as far as what was originally written. And we know this because there's thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of manuscripts of the New Testament. Um, and there's a, whole, there's a whole field of study called textual criticism, if you're interested in that, um, that just looks at all of the different copies of Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts and compares them to each other and figures out what the original most likely said. And the Bible, the English Bible that we have today is incredibly accurate. So there's the accuracy, right, which is, which is one thing. And then there's the truthfulness. The Bible could be accurate in that it was transmitted correctly, but it could be just fairy tales. Um, and so then if the Bible's accurate, then I think you have to look at, okay, does it make sense to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And that's a different question, but I think that it does. I think based on all the other evidence or other explanations, the resurrection of Jesus is plausible. And so then, if Jesus rose from the dead, nobody else has ever risen from the dead, so I'm gonna go with what Jesus says about the Old Testament. Um, yeah, so that's where I'd start. If you're, if you're interested in, can I trust the Bible? I would start with the Gospels. I would start with stories about Jesus and everything kind of unfolds after that. If you can trust the Gospel of Luke, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Acts is probably trustworthy as a piece of history. There's a lot of things in Acts that talk about Paul, who Paul was, what his character was, what he was like. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. So we can probably trust Paul. Um, going backwards, Jesus quotes the Old Testament a whole bunch and says it's God's word. So if Jesus believed it was God's word, then we can probably believe it was God's word too. Um, yeah, and I don't know if, um, if this question has anything to do with like other books, like there's all, like if you read, if you watch the Da Vinci Code or, or read about, uh, um, you know, other, other gospels or things like that. Um, a lot of times you'll read that like the, the books of the New Testament were written like hundreds of years after Jesus lived. Uh, and that's just not true. All of the books that we have in our Bible were written well inside the first century within a couple decades uh, if, if you go really late, within 50 to 60 years of the events that, of, of Jesus' life, and then 150 years later, 250 years later, people start writing these other gospels, the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Peter and all these things. That's where like all the Da Vinci Code stuff comes from and where you know, Jesus married Mary Magdalene and they moved to England or I don't know where they moved to. <laughs> but like all of those books are written hundreds of years later and they have no real basis in history. Whereas the books that we have in the New Testament are deeply tied to the actual events because they were written by the first generation of people to experience those things. And so there's a lot more credibility for the books of the Bible that we have than for some of those extra gospels that everybody wants to include that say different things. So kind of along that same line, how important is it to take the book of Genesis creation story, literally? <laughs> That's a good question. Like Survived. Are we trying to kill them? Is that what's happening? <laughs> okay, just checking. Um, uh, well, so that, that depends on what you mean by literally. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that is it important to take the Bible in the context in which it was written. 
And so some people would say that, so, and so that's different than other interpreters who would say that the Bible should always be taken literally because a lot of the Bible is not written that way. I mean, if you think of the Psalms, there's tons of poetry in the Psalms where David says, I'm a worm and not a man. Well, is he really a worm? No, it's a metaphor. And so that you have to ask the question, what is Genesis? Uh, and it's obviously poetry. That's the way it's written. That doesn't mean it's not true, or, I mean, you can write a poem that's true. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not literal in the sense of this is what happened. It just means that it's written in a way to be rhythmic and metrical. And if, if you read it, even in English, if I don't speak Hebrew, but I'm told that in Hebrew, it's very much Hebrew poetry. But even in English, you can kind of tell it follows a, a rhythm on the first day, and it was good. And on the second day, it was good. And on the third day, it was good. And so there are people, there are people like, um, you know, and I'll just say, Ken Ham, who is a, he's a Christian man. He's a follower of Jesus. But he'll say things like, if you don't believe in the literal six-day account in Genesis, you've pretty much just gotten rid of the whole Bible. You can't, you can't believe in any of it. I just don't think that that's true. Um, I think you can read the book of Genesis in a way that um, takes the imagery to be figurative and still be a follower of Jesus and still be a Christian, if that's the way you read it, if you think that the discoveries of modern science today show that the literal six days, six to 10,000 years ago account of Genesis is not correct, um, then I don't think that affects your faith. Conversely, I think you can take Genesis literally uh, in the sense that it has been taken for the last several hundred years. Uh, and um, still be a follower of Christ. I don't think it's that big a deal, whereas some people would say that it is. And it's not because one person views Genesis as wrong. I think that's a big deal. If you, if you read the book of Genesis and go, I don't believe that God is responsible for that. I don't believe that that's true. I think that's a problem. I think we have, you have to wrestle with that uh, because from my perspective, all of the Bible is inspired by God all there for a purpose and is all true. Um, but I think you can make an argument that what the book of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis is saying is not what modern people have come to believe that it is saying. That it is not really a story about the mechanics of creation. That it is more a story about God setting himself up as the king of creation. If you're if you're, again, if you're in one of our communities, we're going through a study about kind of the story of the heavens and the earth. And I think what gets talked about a little bit in that study is the idea of the temple as the place where God dwells and where he meets with people. And this, the language of Genesis is very, very similar um, to other ancient accounts of a God setting up a temple. Um, he, he sets up this uh, this garden where he's going to meet with the people and he, and he gives them a job to do and they worship him there. 
And uh, there's a scholar named John Walton who does a lot of this study, and, and he, he reads through lots of different accounts of ancient Near Eastern uh, stories of creation, and he finds similarities in Genesis, and he finds differences in Genesis. But his contention is that whether or not the world was created 10,000 years ago or 4 billion years ago, he would say that Genesis just doesn't have an opinion about that. That's not the, that's not the point of the beginning of Genesis. Um, and again, I don't think it's a big enough deal to fight about. Like if you land on like, I really think Genesis is six literal days of creation and this is how it went down. And when we add up the genealogies, it happened about six to 10,000 years ago. That's totally fine. And that could absolutely be true. But if you're not convinced of that, uh, if you feel like the discoveries of modern science have shown that the earth is much longer than, much uh, older than that, or that biological evolution has taken place. I don't think that is an issue that we need to divide over. The one thing I would say about science is I wouldn't be too quick to anchor yourself to the latest discoveries in modern science because they change like every day. If you haven't noticed, like we, I just read an article that the universe used to be 13 billion years old, but they made a mistake and now it's only 12 billion years old. So, I mean, that's a lot of time to miss. A billion years, it's a long time. And so I wouldn't be surprised if as science continues to progress, the assumptions we have about how life originated will continue to change. And so to directly answer the question, I would say, it's not that big a deal if that's not where you fall. All right. So then, next question, how much doubt constitutes an unbeliever? Where is the line of salvation? Well, I think the line of salvation is you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. I mean, I think faith in Christ is salvation. It's accepting the gift of, of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. And I think everything else is in some way a side issue. I mean, a lot of those side issues are important side issues. There's a lot of really important issues that we need to wrestle through. But I mean, the thief on the cross didn't do anything, didn't know anything. And he was saved. You know, and, and the, Paul's pretty explicit in all his letters, but we just got done studying through Galatians in our community groups, and he rails on the Galatians for adding to the gospel. And so it's faith in Christ. It's believing that Jesus is the Lord, and you are his subject, and he has died for you. And then all those other things need to be worked out, but they need to be worked out after that. All right. And we'll finish it up with one more question. Any good books about doubt? <clears throat> Any good books about doubt? <clears throat> yeah, um, I ran across a couple, and I should have written them down. But I will, uh, I'll put together a short reading list and post it on social media this week. Because um, there are a couple really good um, books that have come out recently about doubt. Um, if you want an old book... Um, Augustine wrote a book called Confessions like 1,500 years ago. Is that right? 1,700 years ago, something like that. Um, which is kind of his testimony and how he came to faith and how he wrestled with God. Uh, it's 
it's worth your time if you like old things. Um, but I'll put some modern titles on our social media page this week and um, yeah, see what we come up with. Is that all of them? All right. Yep, that's all. Cool. Well, I hope that was helpful. Um, if it was, let us know because we'd like to do it more regularly if, um, if it's something that works for everyone. Um, let's, uh, let's sing a little bit and then we'll uh, give the birds some peace. <laughs> You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.